Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Well, hello and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Well, today we'll be studying in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Again, I'll be teaching from the New Living Translations for clarity. So let's jump right in and get started. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm reading verses 1 through 5. I, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. God guided all of them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them, and he brought them all safely through the waters of the sea on dry ground. As followers of Moses, they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea, and all of them ate the same miraculous food, and all of them drank drank the same miraculous water, but they all drank from the miraculous rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet after all this, God was not pleased with most of them, and he destroyed them in the wilderness. So now Paul makes a a powerful point here. Although all the Israelites, Israelis, came out of Egypt in one company, and they were under God's direction, and they were like one huge congregation. There were uh, one to three million of them, possibly, and... and, uh, but many of them fell into sin. They were all one group. And of course, there were some rabble mixed in among them. And there were some, uh, some of the people who left Egypt who were not Jewish, but they were all in together. They had, uh, in a sense, embraced Judaism and, and they were all together. And, uh, but most of them fell into sin. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. Paul used this bit of uh, history to remind the saints at Corinth that what happened to their ancestors could happen to them if they followed the same example of unbelief. This lesson also applies to our generation. Just because we start out together doesn't guarantee that we'll end up together. Whether we enter heaven depends upon whether we continue to follow God until the end of this life. We, we, can, we have to continue in faith. Their, uh, their, their promised land, of course, was the land. Uh, the land of Canaan, and our promised land, of course, is heaven. Now, <clears throat> so Paul is warning those Corinthians that they are standing by faith, and the proof of our uh, of our salvation is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the proof of our faith is our, our conduct upon earth. So there are a lot of people who get baptized when they were children, and then they never serve God, they never follow God, and they're convinced that they're that they're uh, they're saved and they're on their way to heaven. They have no fruit in their lives, um, but they they are secure in the belief, in the at least in their mind that they're on their way to heaven. So Paul is kind of uh, rattling this chain a little bit. He's challenging that notion. Paul took the time to remind the saints at Corinth of some important facts uh, about some important things that happened to the to their Jewish ancestors. First. He felt that it was important to emphasize the point that people who came out of Egypt 
were seen as one body under Moses. They had a shared experience. They all had the experience of, of being miraculously, miraculously guided by God. They, uh, they were led by the cloud. They were led, uh, uh, led by the fire. Uh, they were eating miraculous food, and they, they drank from the, the rock that typified Christ or symbolized Christ. And th but despite that fact, they made different choices. The experience had a, a different effect on some of them than it did on others. Most of them did not respond in a positive way uh, to the, what they experienced. They saw all that God did to the Egyptian. They saw God's miraculous hand in the, in the desert caring for them. But despite that, they turned to worshiping idol gods even before they got into Canaan, Canaan land. Uh, they rebelled against God. They murmured against Moses. Um, and they were destroyed, many of them. They got into fornication on one occasion, and uh, and, and I think 23,000 were destroyed that day, and God had to deal with them time after time after time for their rebellion. So God destroyed a lot of those that he had rescued. And so Paul is warning the church, those who are in the church, that we can't follow their wicked example uh, and expect not to get the same kind of treatment that they got. They were judged for their sins. And so if we, if we uh, rebel against God, live a life of disobedience and unbelief, then uh, we are warned that the same thing could happen to us. Paul cited this experience to warn the saints at Corinth that they should not make the same mistakes that the Israelis made, that the Israelites made, uh, and rebel against God after having been rescued by him or after having followed him because the whole congregation, the whole, the whole uh, nation, though they didn't have land yet, they came out of Egypt as a nation. They all followed God into the desert, but most of them rebelled. So Paul warned the Corinthians not to rebel against God as the ancient Israelites did, and they were destroyed by the same God who rescued them. If the Corinthians shows that same course of action, Paul is warning them that uh, the same thing would happen to them as well. Now I'm reading verses 6 through 11. These events happened as warnings to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. For the scriptures say, say the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged themselves in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and, uh, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, for that is why God sent his angel of death to destroy them. All of these events happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the time when this age is drawing to a close. So there's some important nuggets to be brought out of that. The over the overlying point uh, that Paul is making is that <clears throat> we can't live like they lived. Claim religion, claim to be Christians, live like they live and expect to es escape the judgment that uh, fell upon them. In these six verses, Paul provided a list of some of the very sins that defined the rebellion of, of, of his ancestors and caused their destruction. 
They desired evil things. They worshiped idols. They engaged in sexual immorality, okay? They put God to the test, and they grumbled and complained against God. Now, God has demonstrated his great love and concern to the Hebrews by freeing them from the, from the terrible oppression of the Egyptians. He demonstrated his love. He rescued them. He showed them mercy. He destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians. That was a culminating act of, 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 of his miracles. Uh, after all those other, I believe, 10 miracles that he did, um, and then he, his, his uh, coup de grace was to, to uh, destroy the firstborn. And, and then he delivered the Israelites out safely. Um, they had witnessed his deliverance time and time again, not only in Egypt, but as they went out into the desert. And uh, they ended up actually spending 40 years wandering around in the desert because of their rebellion when they could have gone straight into Canaan land if they had obeyed God. They'd seen God's great and mighty miracles and, and they had enjoyed the, uh, his, his care and his provisions, but they chose to rebel against God. They murmured. Um, they uh, bitterly chided against Moses. They, they claimed to prefer to, uh, to go back to Egypt. In fact, they, 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 on one occasion, they said, let's choose a leader to lead us back into Egypt because Egypt was better than this. And, and they provoked God in so many ways. Now, in Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites made a golden calf and held a feast to it and worshiped it. And, and they said, they gave credit to the golden calf, the idol, and said, these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. So they took the credit and the glory that went to God after he'd been so good to them. They made something with their own hands, a golden calf, and they bowed down and worshiped that thing. And, and they gave it the credit for leading them out. All of the good things that God had done in their lives, they gave credit to a dumb idol. And Paul also mentioned an occasion when the Israelis worshiped the Canaanite god Baal Peor and engaged in sexual immorality with Moabite women. And, and God killed 23,000 of them in one day. That's in Numbers chapter 5, uh, uh, Numbers chapter 25, I'm sorry, verses 1 through 9. Now, this example was especially relevant to the saints at Corinth because they lived under the shadow of all of these uh, pagan temples that, uh, that uh, crafted in, in prostitution, that trafficked in, in human trafficking, prostitution. Uh, and there was so much immorality that's, that uh, surrounded them. So, but, God, but Paul warned them that don't fall into this sexual immorality like they did. And, and actually the Corinthians were in a similar situation that the Israelites were when they came out of Egypt because the nations around them uh, were very sexually immoral. And so they were seduced into falling into this. And Paul ended this section of his letter with a warning against following the example of their ancestors and putting God to the test. Uh, he reminded them of how uh, their ancestors also tested God's patience by murmuring and complaining about the manna. God was feeding them with manna, and they would have only had to eat that manna for a few days, um, um, uh, perhaps a few weeks at, at most or, or months at most, they would only have to eat that because if they had been obedient, instead of wandering around in the desert for 40 years, they would have gone right in and possessed the land of Canaan. It wasn't that far away from Egypt. 
They could have gone right in in short order. But because they rebelled against God, he had them wander around in the desert for 40 years. They murmured against God and they chided Moses and they, they murmured against Moses and, and, and God judged them by sending poisonous snakes among them. And many were bitten and died from those snakes. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. All the things that happen in Israel's recorded history can be used as lessons to the saints of every generation. Some of Corinthians believe that since they were under grace, now these are the Corinthians that, uh, that Paul is speaking to and warning about the ancient Israelites and what they did. So they'd come under Christ. They'd been saved by the blood of Christ. And some of them believe that they were under grace. And since they were under grace, they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies. And, and that's a teaching that is pretty um, prominent, common in our day. People think they can get baptized and then they can go on with their sinful lives. They can live any way they want to. All they do, come to church, get baptized, maybe put their name on the roll, and now they're safe to sin. And that's not, and Paul is warning against that. When you say that you're a Christian, when you turn your life over to Christ, then you are freed from the reign of sin. You are freed from the slavery of sin. And God expects us to live a different kind of lifestyle. And that's not to say that we don't still struggle with some sin in our lives, that God helps us to overcome stuff. But we don't just live in sin. We don't live under the domination of sin. Sin does not reign over us. Okay? So there may be some sin that remains in us. God, God cleanses us from sin. He's in the process of cleansing us from all sin. And so we live a different kind of life when we become Christian. Paul took the time to correct that kind of erroneous thinking. He let them know that they had to avoid the sins that the ancient Israelis had fallen into. He also made it clear that God expects his people to walk in obedience to his moral laws. So we're responsible to live in a way which pleases God. God gives us the grace to live right, not the grace to sin. There's nowhere in the Bible that says God gives us the grace or the license to sin. No, he gives us the grace to follow him, to obey him, uh, and to live a different kind of life. That's grace in itself. The fact that we're able to turn away from our old sins and walk in obedience to the things of God, that is God's grace that is working in us. Uh, the Bible says, for it is God who works in you, Philippians chapter 2, uh, both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. God is working in us, giving us the desire and the ability to obey him. Okay, So um, um, in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that God it is God who is giving us the desire to obey him, and then he's giving us the ability to obey him. So we ought to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, okay? Uh, because God is working in us, both the willing to do of his own good pleasure. That's that whole passage there. So there's a partnership between God. God gives us a grace. We use the grace to live for him, to turn away from sin. Now I'm reading verses 12 through 14. If you think, if you think you're standing strong, be careful, for you too may fall into the same sin. But remember that the temptations that come into your life or no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong 
that you can't stand up against it. When you attempt it, he will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. So my dear friends, flee from the worship of idol. So it's important for Christians not to become overconfident, okay? We have to be watchful and aware of the possibility of falling into the same sins that they fell into. So we can't get cocky, we can't get overconfident, um, but we have to be watchful and aware that it is possible to fall. And so we have to watch ourselves. There are no unique temptations, Paul wants to remind us of that fact. The temptation that we face are common to other people. We may have different areas of weakness, but every temptation that we experience is, is being experienced by some other Christian somewhere. So don't let the devil get you off into a corner and, and make you think this is some new kind of temptation that nobody's gone through this before. Nobody has suffered like this before. These temptations are common. They are the, the uh, tools of the enemy that tries to destroy us, and God uses them, what the enemy brings against us, to temper our faith and make us strong, okay? So it's always important to understand that being tempted is not a sin in itself. Temptations come to test the resolve of every Christian. Sin enters only when we yield to temptation, okay? So you're going to be tested, tempted, in the area of your commitment. So if you commit that you're going to begin to support your church with tithes and offerings, and sometimes the enemy will, will begin to mess with your finances some to see how strong your resolve is. Um, when I made the determination years ago that I was going to tithe without fail, this, uh, 30, 40 years ago, um, some things happened. My, uh, my roof started leaking in my septic tank uh, stopped working and the toilets wouldn't flush. Um, so the enemy was trying to present me with a temptation to take the money I'd set aside for my tithes to fix those things that were practical and necessary. But I made the resolve, well, we'll get through this. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to honor God with what I committed to do. I'm going to give him his money. Guess what? Uh, the toilets started working and somehow we got the roof fixed without using God's money. And God has, has uh, blessed our lives since then. If we make a commitment to stand from God, know that you're going to be tested in that area. There's going to be some temptation for you to give up. And so you have to dig your heels in. You have to use the grace of God because it's not just willpower. It's, it's not willpower and, and, and self-discipline. It is the power of God working in you. Use his grace. Pray for his strength and use that to resist those temptations, okay? But although it's true that everyone faces temptation, no one can say that the temptation to do evil comes from God. Sometimes we may face temptations that seem overwhelming, but, but, but uh, it helps us to remember uh, that God will not allow us to be tempted above that that we're able to endure. And he will also, he says, he will give us a way of escape. He'll give us the strength to go through it. Uh, he'll give us a way around it. Somehow he will help us through it. So understand that you're not in your temptation alone. Seek God, uh, seek counsel from, from other godly people, and you'll get through it. None of the temptations that we experience are unbearable, okay? So God, because 
we've got God working with us. Knowing that we have the power to overcome any temptation changes the way that we look at them and the way we think about them. We realize that we're not facing an unbeatable foe. And especially it's important to realize that God is with you in this thing and God has all power. We realize that our capacity for victory over the temptation, when we think about that fact that God is with us, he'll help us, um, we're aware that we can be victorious over the temptation. Now, this kind of clear thinking propels us forward, and, and uh, it gives us greater resolve when we know that we can do something. However, overcoming various temptation requires us to, to, to fight. We have to fight smarter rather than harder sometimes. Uh, to win, we have to use all the resources in our arsenal. Now, there are some temptations that are unavoidable and must be faced head on. There are other temptations that can, can and should be avoided. When you can avoid a temptation, you want to get, get away from it, remove yourself from that situation. Way to deal with unavoidable temptations, though, is through prayer. There are some things you cannot get around. It's on your job. It's, uh, it's at your church. It's, it's wherever you have to go. It's in your home. So you have to be very prayerful in that. Seek God. Stay in the word. It's wise to prepare ourselves beforehand by developing a disciplined prayer life. But we must also be willing to call upon God to, to help and strengthen us at the very point and at the time of temptation. Prepare before the temptation by developing a disciplined life of prayer so that you are arming for war during a time of peace. But then sometimes temptation hits us suddenly and we have to be ready to pray and pray our way out of it and pray our way through it, seek the help of God, okay? So God will give us the strength to get through it. God will help us. Jesus said this, keep alert and pray. Watch and pray, the King James says. Otherwise, temptation will overpower you. For though the spirit is willing enough, the body is weak, okay? That's Matthew 26 and 41. So, the spirit is willing to obey God, but our body gets in the way sometimes. That's what Jesus is saying. So prayer is the antidote. Prayer is the thing that gives us the strength that changes our mind and our thinking towards sin. And it helps us to get through it. When we, uh, uh, when he faced what was possibly the, the greatest unavoidable temptation in his life, that is Jesus. When he had to go to the cross, um, he had to face that torture and then that terrible death. Um, he was tempted to try to go around it. And so he prayed. He sought God and he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In other words, if there's another way to do this, let's do it. I don't really want to go through this. But he said, nevertheless, not as I will, your will be done. He went and he prayed and the Bible says an angel came and strengthened him. And then he was able to stand up and face that temptation and go through that torture and that death for, for our sakes. And now we are saved because of his obedience. And that's in Luke 22, 40 through 43. After seeking God in prayer, Jesus was able to escape the failure. God gave him strength and he did not fail in any area of his life. Um, he was able to go through it. Okay. Now, 
We can also strengthen ourselves against temptation by studying and meditating upon God's word. David said in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then David was a man who knew the power of temptation because you understand that he had fallen into some terrible temptation and done some terrible things, but he learned from that. He learned that there is strength in, in prayer, prayer and in, in hiding the word in our hearts, okay? Uh, so whenever we resist a temptation, we, we have escaped it. When we resist it and get through it without yielding to it, we have escaped it. We can escape some temptation by avoiding them. The Bible says a prudent man sees the evil, he foresees the evil, and hides himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. Okay, that's Proverbs 27 and 12. It's, it's foolish to expose ourselves to things that we know we have a weakness for. Prudent people avoid temptations by avoiding certain people, places, and things that they know will tempt us. God's word also advises us to seek the aid of others in our struggle against temptation. It's extremely important to have people we can trust and confide in that we talk to and make sure that they're strong, uh, like your pastor or spiritual leaders, somebody that you can share your, um, your temptation with and your struggles with who can pray with you and keep you accountable. Now, this means that we have to inform certain people of our struggles and, and ask them for help. And that's right in line with the scripture. James 5, 6, 16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. That's James 5, 16 in the New Living Translation. Now, one of the most essential and often neglected keys to spiritual growth and development is active involvement in the church. People uh, neglect uh, being faithful to their church and you're going to get weak. God established the church and told us to assemble together and that's where we get a lot of our strength from, assembling with the people of God. So you so you cannot be an enemy of the church, cannot neglect, neglect going to church and expect to be strong. You have to make a commitment to be faithful, go be there every time the doors open because God has something for you. And God uses you to encourage other people and other people encourage you. And then the, the pastor has taken the time to prepare a word for you and you don't want to miss what God has for you. Try missing three or four meals in succession and see how weak you get. I mean, natural meals. Uh, just walk past the table two or three days without eating and see how weak you get. Well, the same applies in spiritual life. You cannot neglect church attendance and expect to be strong they're going to be weak, falling down, and getting up all over the place if you are not committed and rooted in a local church. And you should be in the church, not just receiving. You should find a place to serve so that you can bless other people. Now I'm reading verses 15 through 21. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I'm about to say is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the benefits of the blood of Christ? And when we break the loaf of bread, aren't we sharing in the benefits of the body of Christ? Um, and we all eat from one loaf, share, um, showing that we are one body. And think about the nation of Israel. All who eat the sacrifices are united by that act. What am I trying to say? Am I saying that the idols to whom the pagans bring sacrifices are real gods and that these sacrifices are of some value? No, not at all. 
What I am saying is that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want any of you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons, uh, from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and the table of demons too. Idolatry is not a harmless practice, okay? So some of the Corinthian saints thought that since they knew that the, that the idols were nothing, that they could sit up there in the idol temple and eat that food offered to idols because they weren't giving any uh, credit to the idols. They knew that there was only one God. They thought they could just go in and, and uh, eat there. But Paul is letting them know that when you go into these uh, pagan temples and you eat this meat, you're, it's like you're taking communion with demon spirits. And the, the idols were nothing. But there were demon spirits behind the idols sometimes. And they did supernatural things. Sometimes they could do things uh, that convinced people that the idols were real. Okay, So there was a, it is a trick of Satan. Every religious system, aside from, uh, from the true the truth that Jesus Christ came and, and that God gave us the, the truths in the Bible. Um, all of those religious systems, those pagan systems that were set up, and even including idolatry, were set up to confuse people and mislead people. And so Paul is letting them know that it's not just a, a harmless activity. There are demons behind these things. And you don't want to be partakers in the cup of God and the cup of the demons. When we have communion, we are showing that we are one. We are joined to the body of Christ. The, the, uh, the wine typifies the blood of Christ. The uh, bread typ typifies the body of Christ. It symbolizes those things. And when we partake of that in communion, we're showing that we're all one body joined with Christ. Um, but similarly, when they would go into those um, pagan temples, those uh, places where idols were worshipped, and when they ate that meat there, they were symbolizing the fact that they are joined together to that idol, uh, and they are actually being joined to demons. There was demonic activity. Uh, sometimes people would become possessed by demons, and, and, and sometimes people could tell fortune through these demons. They knew secret things, and they would reveal them sometimes to the priests and the priestesses. Paul encountered that in the book of Acts, you'll remember, it was a girl who was demon-possessed who made her master, she was a slave girl, and she made her masters a lot of money because she could tell fortune. And that's what psychics do today. And that's why God's people should have nothing to do with, with psychics and witches and, and, and the occult and all of that stuff today. And there's demon activity behind it. Uh, and, and so we don't want to be joined with consorting with demons. We want to separate from that. And so Paul is showing them that it's, it's, it's not a harmless practice to go into these things because some of the Corinthians were doing this and to eat this food. Stay away from that, Paul is saying. Stay away from these, um, these idols, this, uh, this food that they, uh, that they uh, are, are, are serving, and don't be joined with these, these uh, demonic spirits. Now I'm reading verses 22 through 24. What, do you dare to, re to rouse the Lord's jealousy as Israel did? Do you think we're stronger than he is? You say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is helpful. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't think only of your, of your, your own good. Think of other Christians 
and what is best for them. So participants in these pagan rituals and eating that food sacrifice to idols would provoke God to jealousy in the same way that the ancient Israelites provoked God to jealousy uh, by worshiping those idols. And so Paul warned the Corinthians to be careful not to arouse God's anger uh, and his jealousy like they did by consorting with uh, uh, the pagan worshipers and by um, going into those uh, pagan temples and eating the meat that, that was there. Some of the saints insisted on exercising their freedom just because they realized that there was nothing to the pagans, but they didn't take into consideration that they were joining themselves to demons. Now I'm reading verses 25 through 26. Here's what you should do. You may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace. Don't ask whether or not it is offered to idols, and then your conscience won't be bothered, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So Paul confirmed the fact that some of the animals were that were sacrificed to idols and sold in the meat markets. He confirmed that, and he says, how to handle that is don't ask any questions. Don't ask, don't tell. When you go to buy the meat, don't ask him, was this, was this meat offered to idols? Um, because if you do and they tell you, then your conscience is provoked. So he says, don't ask, don't tell. Nothing wrong with the meat as long as you um, have no mind that it's an idol, that your conscience is clear. You don't, even, you don't know. To you, it's just meat. If nobody tells you it's been offered to an idol, it's just meat. But if somebody tells you it's been offered to an idol, he said, don't eat it for your sake, for the sake of the person who may be watching you. You don't want to violate the, the a weak conscience of your brothers or sisters. Okay. Now I'm reading verses 27 through 31. If someone who isn't a Christian asks you home for dinner, go ahead, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you and don't ask any questions about it. Your conscience should not be bothered by this. But suppose someone warns you that this meat has been offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. Now, when, now, why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, you must do all for the glory of God. Okay, so if a Christian received an invitation to go to the home of an unbeliever, and uh, Paul said, accept the, accept the invitation and don't ask any question, but but um, uh, and eat the food without asking any question. But if they tell you it's been offered to an idol, then you're under obligation not to eat it because you want to always consider um, the fact that you're representing God and you don't want to send the signal that it's okay to eat meat offered to idols because that person's conscience may be saying to them that the idols are something real. Okay, So Paul spent a lot of time on this because it was relevant to them. Um, it's not as relevant to us today, at least in Western civilization, um, because, because we don't um, um, indulge in that. The thing that's relevant to us is that we should be considerate of whatever we do. We should think about other people and how it affects other people. That's the lesson for us today. Whatever we do, we should be considerate of how what we do is going to affect someone else. Now I'm reading verses 32 and 33. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. That is the plan I follow too. 
I try to please everyone in everything and everything I do. I don't just do what I like or what is best for me, but what is best for them uh, so they may be saved. Okay, so Paul is saying that we have to comport ourselves. That is, we have to carry ourselves in such a way all the time so that we're considerate of other people. Paul kept his eye on the bottom line. How is this affecting other people? How can I get them to Christ? Uh, uh, Paul wanted people to be saved. And so he calculated all of his actions and how it fed into that. If I'm doing something that's going to offend people or, or shy them away from Christ, I don't want to do it. I want to deny myself that. Well, Paul is saying we should be at all times considerate of the needs of other people and how it's going to affect them and uh, the fact that we want them to come to Christ. Amen? Well, that brings us to the close of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Next time, we will deal with chapter 11. If you're ever in the Indianapolis area, I want to invite you to come worship with us at New Direction Church. We have uh, two campuses here in the Indianapolis area, and my son is a pastor, a senior pastor over both campuses. He's doing a wonderful job. Our um, our North Campus, our East Campus is located 5330 East 38th Street. And our North Campus is located at 7701 East 86th Street. Uh, we'd like for you to come and visit with us and uh, uh, be blessed in the services. You can check the service time by going to ndcbetterlife.org. like for you to join me in our next session when we will uh, cover chapter, again, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Until then, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune in to our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast. 